Well, hey there, freaks. It's your boy Marty here to introduce this week's episode with Travis Kling from Ikigai Capital Management. Uh, I sat down with Travis last Friday, about a week ago, over some Oberon Wheat Owls. We talked about his journey to Bitcoin, uh, how he thinks we should be pitching Bitcoin to the masses, and uh, a bunch of other stuff. This episode of Tales from the Crypt is brought to you by the Cash App. You freaks already know all about them. Uh, use the code STACKINGSATS. If you have not downloaded the Cash App yet, download it. Then use the code STACKINGSATS, S-T-A-C-K-I-N-G-S-A-T-S. You're going to get $5, and $5 is going to go to Alves Lacrosse, a charity very near and dear to our heart. And then you're going to be able to buy Bitcoin, sell Bitcoin, send Bitcoin uh, off the app, send Bitcoin to the app if you want to. And then on top of that, they have their boost program. Uh, you get teamed up with merchants. I actually noticed last week a new merchant that they have uh is the mta if you're in new york city and you want to get a dollar off the mta that boost is floating around right now but you need your boost card to do that so make sure you sign up for your boost card once you have the cash app downloaded you're gonna be able to customize that uh, you're gonna be able to use that wherever visa is accepted and you're gonna get uh the boost program on top of that so you're gonna be able to save on your mta pass uh when you're getting coffee whole foods they're adding new boost all the time so go to your local app store download the cash app again code stacking sats get that five dollars Get $5 to charity. This episode's also brought to us by Casa. Freaks, how confident are you in your key security? Uh, have you gotten set up with multi-sig yet? Does your key setup have a single point of failure? Our friends at Casa have drummed up one of the smartest and most secure ways to hodl your Bitcoin. No KYC, no altcoins, no percentage fee of your Bitcoin. No one's standing between you and your keys. Uh, you're going to get peace of mind for your stash with the world's security. Uh, one of the world's most secure multi-sigs. Use the promo code TFTC. You're going to get 200 up to, excuse me. You're going If you use the code TFTC, you're going to get up to $250 off your CASA membership. Uh, and you can figure out their membership t- tiers at uh, keys.casa. Uh, and then on top of that, if you just want to hit them out directly, you can reach out to them at membership at team.casa. Okay, that's membership at team.casa. You can reach out to them directly for a free demo or put them to the test with your hardest offset questions. They're, uh, they're willing to have holes poked at their process and uh, willingly ask for that. So they have packages. All memberships come with a full set of hardware wallets for your multi-sig plus the Casa node uh, and Faraday bags and early access to all future Casa products. For serious hodlers, the Diamond and Platinum memberships net you 24-7 VIP service, a dedicated Dedicated client advisor and custom onboarding and OPSEC plan. Uh, Casa's been putting out some really cool features, excuse me, cool products. Uh, so the multi-sig, the node, um, and now they have sats back on the node, I believe, too, if you're if you're checking in on the sats app. Uh, so they're doing really cool things, really stellar team over there. So again, check out Casa. Um, use the code TFTC to get up to $250 off. And uh, if you want to email them, membership at team.casa. All right. I hope you freaks enjoy this episode. Uh, don't get triggered by the amount of times that Travis says distributed ledger technology. I know uh, some of you will get triggered, but just hey, take it with a grain of salt. Okay. Tales from the Crypt. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. It's your boy Marty Bent here, recording three today, Travis. Bingo, bingo. Sitting down with Travis Kling from a key guy, asset management. Asset management? Asset management. Yes. That's it. CIO um, uh, had an incredible spot on CNN last week. We haven't even talked about this yet. We've been, we've been uh, spitballing about 
your past and stuff like that. But we did not mention CNN. Got to give a shout out to you. Incredible appearance on CNN. Yeah. It, uh, it's as somebody who's like been in Bitcoin forever. Uh, that's what you look that's what you look for is, is people giving good pitches on the mainstream media. And I think, uh, I think you did a good job on CNN, dude. No, I appreciate it. it. That one got a ton of traction. And I think part of it was just, um, having a clear, concise message and not going too hardcore, too far down into the tech or like just explaining why Bitcoin is important using, or from the perspective of like somebody more from a traditional finance background and like some of these things, the way that people talk about Bitcoin, it's not that any of it is untrue. Like is Bitcoin a truth machine? Like, yeah, it's a truth machine. Is that helpful to an institutional investor? Like not that helpful. (laughs) Right. And that's why whenever I get a chance, I just say Bitcoin is a non-sovereign hard cap supply, global, immutable, decentralized digital store of value. It's an insurance policy against monetary and fiscal policy irresponsibility from central banks and governments globally. It seems like that would be easier to memorize than like the, um, the what is it when you put your hand in your, what was that? Pledge of Allegiance. Pledge of Allegiance, yeah. <laughs> is it the Bitcoiners Pledge of Allegiance? <laughs> this is what I believe Bitcoin is. Yeah. No, I agree. And that's what we're talking about. Like, I was trying to figure out how this uh, this line of questioning is going to We'll dive into your story later, but you mm. are very passionate about sharpening the pitch um, of Bitcoin. Like that's why I wanted to sneak attack you with the CNN line there because I think you did an incredible like it was, like that is an incredible pitch. It's very concise and sort of gets it all in one fell swoop. What like and that's what we were talking about before the record before we hit record is the first 10 years the pitch probably has not been as good for institutional investors so that's your background yeah is is working in the institutional investment world and and the people that uh potentially could invest in bitcoin in the future what do you think uh bitcoiners are doing wrong right now that we could improve narrative wise or pitch wise well it's bitcoin part of it i think is is bitcoin's gone through a bunch of phases and you know, I jumped into all this in the summer of 17, so I didn't see a lot of them. But it started off as an absolute science experiment that what maybe a couple hundred people knew about. And then it got its first big use case, right? Buy drugs on the internet. Works really well for that. And that proved, it kind of pulled it out of, of science experiment phase and into actual utility phase. And then as, as time went on, there was the whole, you know, blockchain, not Bitcoin thing, where it was like, oh, no, it's actually about this underlying technology, which, you know, and, and, and you know, Wall Street tried to co-opt that for a while. And in that was the kind of 13, 14 time frame, I think, that Wall Street was trying to co-opt that. Yeah, that's when you had your consortiums, your digital, yeah. digital assets. What was it? Blythe Masters had her um, digital right. asset holdings or something like that. I and, I, and I tell people... Because a lot of pre-coiners, um, very good. We're, we're we were debating the uh, not even debating. We we have to correct ourselves when we say no coiners. These I'm going to stop saying no coiners. It's I'm going to use pre-coiners. It's too derogatory. Pre-coiners. Yeah. Pre-coiners. I like. We love our pre-coiners. And I think a lot of a lot of pre-coiners um, are. St- it, there's less people that are latching on to this blockchain, not Bitcoin meme these days. You still definitely find them, still find plenty of people that say the technology is very exciting. And what I remind people that like 
in a private permission setting, distributed ledger technology is a Google sheet. It's a, it's a Google sheet. You share it with other people. If I make a change, you see the change immediately, right? As opposed to like if I have a Microsoft Excel file and I email it to you and then you make a change and then I fire up my version of it, I don't see your change. Like the, it's a, that's what a private permission ledger is. And there are some, some uses in that context that are going to evolutionize Wall Street's back office, which is just so unbelievably less interesting than an entirely new form of money or distributed compute or a lot of other things. And, but, but, but what you need is the, the game theory and the mechanism design and the incentive structure of having this public crypto asset that's associated with the network that allows for all of this to run in a trustless, decentralized or trust minimized manner. And, you know, if you if you're just using it in this private permission, you know, setting, then, you know, you're going to save, you know, Credit Suisse 50 bips on their SG&A line like over the next couple of years. And it's like, OK, that's great. But like that's not even a good pitch to buy Credit Suisse stock like that. You know, it's like it's just an evolu- a slow evolution of a boring part of finance. Yeah, it's totally uninteresting. Right. Yeah. Like in- that's um, for a hundredth episode we have arbed out from Twitter on. That's, I think, what a lot of people's aha moments is. Is it's it's the it's not payments, it's money, right? It's not the moving of money. It is creating an actual good that is money, and it's hard for people to like to come to the realization that this is what this is all about. Right? Yeah. Some people like that run some of the biggest companies in the space, I would argue, don't even understand what this is all about. I completely agree with that. And there's a bunch of different use cases for distributed ledger technology, which I feel like is a four letter word for like a lot of Bitcoiners and a lot of like crypto people in general. I, I just use it um, as a catch all for that includes private permission ledgers, which we just established are pretty boring. And it includes like DAGs, right? And like DAGs seem kind of interesting. And there's some people that are trying to do some things on DAGs. And then blockchain is like sort of far and away, far and away the, the leader in terms of the, 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 the most usage from, from a distributed ledger technology perspective. But if you, if you are looking at these different use cases for DLT, we, and, I, and I talk about this pretty often, you ask yourself four questions. How ready is the tech for the world? How ready is the world for the tech? What do you need decentralization for? And how decentralized is decentralized enough? So it's apparent to me that money and specifically store of value is the killer app for DLT right now. And Bitcoin is just so drastically far and away the leader in that. Um, And in the context of what's going on with monetary policy and fiscal policy with central banks and governments globally, it is apparent to me that the world is ready for the tech. And if you need that money to be approaching sovereign grade censorship resistance, then you need 10,000 computers all over the world keeping track of this blockchain. And then I look at the, I compare that to a lot of the other use cases for DLT at the moment. And I think smart contract platforms are super interesting. you know, unclear whether or not they're all going to end up being tied back to, to having Bitcoin as the kind of economic unit of value 
through interoperability and things like that. But like when I close my eyes and think about the world 10 years from now, 20 years from now, it seems like smart contracts are going to be everywhere. But um, there's a spectrum of decentralization in terms of smart contract platforms. I think you have Ethereum on the furthest end of, 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 of that spectrum and you can run an assassination market on Augur, right? And, you know, I guess if, if the government really wanted to go knock on Joe Lubin's door in Brooklyn because there's an assassination market on Augur, then, like, I guess maybe you could do that. Um, you could even go after Joey Krug. Yeah, yeah, whatever, yeah. right? But you get my point. It's very decentralized. And then, you know, you keep moving across that spectrum and you've got all these other smart contract platforms. You've got EOS with these 21 block producers that are having their problems with collusion. You've got this hash graph with this like federation of corporations. I would throw Libra in there as well, too. And then all the way to the other end of the spectrum, you have AWS. And AWS, it works amazing. And it is so cheap. We use it for a bunch of stuff, like for Ikigai. And it's like, what exactly do you need decentralization for? And in a lot of these use cases, it's just because decentralization is always going to be harder than the centralized solution. And so you need to have a good answer for what do we need decentralization for? And for a non-sovereign, hard cap supply, global, immutable, decentralized digital store of value, <laughs> you need a lot of decentralization for that. So Bitcoin is just able to more fully answer those four questions. How how long do you did it take you to come to this this real or this line of thinking? Like you said, you got into it like the summer of 2017 in earnest, but it wasn't the first time you heard about Bitcoin, right? You've peeked right. in before. Like, what did you get caught up in? Excuse me, the allure of the token economy, the ICO boom at any point. Like, was what was your path to understanding? Yeah. Um. um <clears throat> so bought my first bitcoin maybe like august of 17 2000 bucks something like that um i'm a really cautious guy i'm cautious as a person and cautious as an investor as like i think people think of hedge funds as being like hedge fund investors as being like very like highly risky like in the context of like people that are hedge fund investors i'm definitely more on the risk averse side of things and personally like uh i would never go skydiving or bungee jumping or anything crazy like that i don't even like gambling I don't even like, like, I, I've never really been like a big gambler. Um, I'm not a big gambler either, but I think I would go skydiving. <laughs> <laughs> Gambling just doesn't, I worked at Barstool Sports and so like that, that office is filled with degenerate gamblers. I would, like, <laughs> I, would uh, I would like turn my head, like I sometimes look around and like, he's just burning money. Like to is me Prez on Bitcoin? Uh I know at some point he did. I, I don't know right now. I don't know if whether he sold it or yeah. not. Potentially to uh, pay off some of his gambling debts. Who knows? I did go. I did go parasailing in Brazil, where you got the big kite on your back and you're like tandem with somebody. And we literally ran off a cliff, like ran off of a cliff with a with like a kite on our back and sail around the bottom. And I I was so freaked out going into it that it was one of these things where the juice like wasn't worth the squeeze like i like would not do it again like ghost white like yeah just like not having a good time going into it at all that wasn't fun <laughs> um but so yeah so jumped into it was looking at all these different use cases nobody knew how to think about value accrual in the summer of 17 if you think back about what that looked like i don't know how staunchly bitcoin you were at the time were you like 100 percent bitcoin summer 17 
Uh, by that point, yes, I'd come around to... I got burnt in 2013, 2014 in that uh, altcoin cycle. And then 20, by 2017... Mastercoin? Mastercoin. Um, I don't even know. I don't know if I ever touched Master. I remember Mastercoin. I don't know if I ever touched it. But believe me, I mean, all the way... Like, I remember... Pure coin when Doge was blowing up, like all mm-hmm. that, all that shit. Um, this 2017, by the time like summer 2017 came around, I was pretty, uh, in my opinion, like all right, I got the the lay of the land, the landscape, and yeah. pretty much like all right, Bitcoin actually probably because what do you need decentralization for, right? And right. it's like probably don't need it for all these other things that at the end of the day may depend on oracles too, and then. Uh, the governance structures that were being thrown on, like the DAO, like in uh, the whole, uh, what was it, MV equals PQ. Or, uh, that was summer 17. That yeah. was late 17. Yeah, that and whole. I got real hooked into that. Yeah, like yeah. when MV p- equals PQ came out, I started questioning, like, how do you, like, and then you just start extrapolating into the future. If that was reality, you end up on a basically token economy of barter, which nobody wants from a user experience perspective. Mm. And I call, I mean, I wrote about it. Like, that's when the bench started, too. And I was calling bullshit on that stuff then. But, yeah. um, no, but it was, like, the same pitch in a different package that I had gotten on, like, multi-algo uh, POW coins with no pre-mines, like, in 2013. Yeah. I was, like, but people are learning and things are... I mean, you can't. That's the nature of the shit, right? It's gonna people are gonna experiment with it and try to do what they want to do with it. And yeah, um, but the, a, a lot of lessons are learned. The the value accrual propositions when I jumped into it were not that well understood. And pr- very early on, when I was jumping into it, I was looking for how to value this stuff because my whole career, like starting when I was 19 years old, when I took my first upper level finance class basically valuing shit was the only thing I ever did with my career. Did it in a bunch of different asset classes, did it up and down the capital structure, did it in super liquid investments, did it in completely illiquid investments. And so I started looking at like, uh, how do you value any, any of this stuff? And there wasn't, a, there wasn't a lot out there at the time. And it seemed like the, the idea of smart contracts made, my knee jerk reaction was that that made a lot of sense to me. And then Ethereum didn't scale back then. That was two years ago. Ethereum didn't scale. And you had a dozen ETH killers, quote unquote, that were coming to eat ETH's lunch because it didn't scale. And so it seemed like a good idea that I should be like sprinkling some bets around these like, quote unquote, ETH killers. Didn't have a good understanding of the technology at all. Um, And then, you know, mimetic investing was massive then right mimetic investing yeah and so it's like <laughs> so it's like supply chain logistics right i'll give me some v chain i got to get some v chain in there and um and then xrp uh which i personally hit an 11 bagger on from early Banks. november to early december of 2017 um, I, I think I bought $5,000 worth of XRP and turned it into $55,000 in, in, like, in like a month. Yeah. And, um, and that made sense to me because I was like, oh, Bitcoin's not, banks aren't going to use Bitcoin. And this, I, I felt like XRP was like the hedge against traditional finance, not accepting, you know, and using Bitcoin and things like that. And XRP was like the meme for that, right? Kind of. And then 
Chris Bernitsky wrote, put out crypto assets and MV equals PQ was in there and the space got super fired up about MV equals PQ and um, pretty soon there <laughs> MV equals PQ. Yeah, I know. And like pretty soon thereafter, people like if you go back and look at it and we on our we have this content depot called Kana and Katana where we did this. We have a, a, a it's a valuation depot where we did like a greatest hits of like the most important kind of valuation blog. Some of them are quantitative, some of them are more qualitative, bunch of like Pfeffer's papers on there. And we have a bunch of the velocity problem blog posts on there. And if you go back and, and look at the, the dates, it was like Bernitsky put out crypto assets in like August of 17. And then like three months later, these blog posts started coming in that were like MV equals PQ doesn't really work, but velocity is a problem, right? And Pfeffer dropped his paper right and um shout out to john pfeffer Love huge that shout guy. out to john pfeffer yeah um and for the for those of you free to know know the paper um travis is referring to john wrote that paper of what it was an investor letter he sent out like december of 2017 uh, and then he made it public on uh medium and he basically called like none of these tokens are going to accrue yeah. value because put the top in on the alt market full right? stop yeah put the top in had the pleasure of uh of getting getting breakfast with John a couple of times. He's an incredible dude, incredible thinker, great investor too. Yeah, great investor, really good guy. Put him up there with with you know the most legendary investors I've ever met. For sure, John, if you're listening, I have um, a great bottle of Bordeaux waiting for you if you ever <laughs> want to come on. I know what you like; it's waiting. And so, yeah, and so people's <laughs> and so it's like people's the market's collective framework in terms of how to think about value accrual like changed right around that time and people started talking about the velocity problem aka he just describes it as the working capital problem i like to also call it the chuck e cheese problem and uh, why the chuck e cheese problem because you, you you go into chuck e cheese and you can't put quarters into the video game you got to take your five dollar bill put it in the machine gives you chuck e cheese tokens you play the video game but when you walk out of the arcade you don't want chuck e cheese tokens you want your dollar back so you can actually go buy something with it and that's the whole. That's kind of the whole velocity issue. There's not. What's the compelling reason to hold the token? Exactly. Um, and here we are, two years later, and the token structure situation outside of Bitcoin, which has earned a monetary premium, which solves your velocity problem. That's an important note. Has still not been figured out by the alt universe. There are, and we talk about this a lot at Ikigai. We look for what we call equity-like features, um, where you have aspects that uh, aspects that can at least, in theory, um, you can make a case will lead to value accrual. And so we consider the top 150 cryptos by market cap as our investable universe. Um, we did full qualitative reviews on that. We've got it broken up into sectors and subsectors. Sectors that look like the S&P 500. It's in this big spreadsheet. We've, there's four columns in the spreadsheet that are there's a bunch of columns but but four of the most important ones are signs of life tech viability asset viability and pumpamentals and specifically on the asset viability that is does the token accrue value is there is there a compelling value accrual mechanism in it and we were lenient enough to give all proof of stake tokens a yet it's either a yes or no we gave, it, we gave them a yes, because in theory, the concept of a yield 
if you like if you like the underlying thing anyways and you get some yield off of it then in theory you can make a case for it accruing value now there is that's being that's being generous because you also need the underlying network that the crypto asset is associated with to actually do something that the real world gives a shit about that and then on top of that Matt Adele and I actually just talked about it on our rabbit hole recap because Binance just announced staking services for their customers. Like to me, proof of stake is just gonna, and, they, and that's the there's many Achilles heels in proof of stake systems, but one of the biggest is that it's just gonna incentivize exchange hoarding, and exchanges are gonna run these systems because right. it's just gonna be easier to stake on Binance than it is to set up your own wallet and stake yourself, and you're gonna get better payouts, more more frequent payouts uh, on exchange, and that's just going to centralize supply. Yeah. And you're going to have, like, an oligarchy oligarchy of exchanges running these POS systems. And and look at um, EOS's 21 block producer situation. Yeah, they already have, like, isn't Brock Pierce calling it, like, screaming collusion of the Chinese? It's it's basically already happened, right? Yeah. Um, You know, so, so... the you got to figure out if you if you're not going to earn a monetary premium then you got to figure out your value accrual mechanism and there's been um it's been disappointing how little of that has been put forth over the last couple of years and i say this every time i get a chance hoping that more people hear it if you're like a phd in mechanism design or whatever and you're not in this space like i don't know what you're doing right and i just like if if any those type of people are out there and you're not working on a crypto asset like you need to come to this space (laughs) because if you figure if you figure that out if you figure out the game theory to it um you know not only do you have a chance to change the world but you're like you're going to get unbelievably financially rewarded for that um and the space hasn't figured it out yet it was a problem two years ago and it's a problem today and what you know on one hand it's nice that Bitcoin's up, I think, like 140% year to date, and the alt universe is up like 15% year to date. And uh, that price discrepancy, performance discrepancy, is uh, refreshing to me because it reflects fundamentals. Um, but on the other hand, two years ago when I was jumping into all this, ETH didn't scale. There was a dozen ETH killers coming to eat ETH's lunch. Uh, and then here we are two years later, ETH still doesn't scale. It's it, the the ETH 2.0 roadmap is tremendously difficult to pull off. If they do pull, if they do pull it off, it's like three years at the fastest. And then these quote unquote ETH killers, like a couple of them look like they exit scammed a couple more still haven't launched a project, uh, a platform. And the only thing like you know, worse off than like ETH network usage statistics, which like outside of, of uh, ERC-20 Tether is like, you know, quite bad, are the network usage statistics of every other quote unquote ETH killer, which are like essentially abysmal. And you've had hundreds of millions of dollars poured into these and tens of thousands of developer man billions, hours. Billions at the peak yeah, at some point. Yeah, and, and like, and, and, and we're still here. And I don't come from a tech investing background. And so I, I'm not sure what the appropriate level of expectation is for the pace of development. I don't know if I'm being too like hard on it. Well, I don't think you're being too hard. I think just people are just coming to the realization that you, 
these it isn't the way to build these products you don't need a blockchain for all these products that we're talking about like what needs to be decentralized and I, me personally i mean i've been saying this for a couple of years now on this podcast like i just think everything that people's envisioning or like DeFi and all that stuff it will come to bitcoin eventually it'll be built on top of it it's just you the the course of action for all this stuff to come to be is is taking course like you cannot build yes we have all these ideas for all these uh exotic products enabled by decentralized uh networks decentralized monetary networks but we're still building out like the infrastructure and the the for bitcoin in particular like building out the base of the protocol from which we'll be able to build on top of it and so that's what i think things like lightning and um other side chain and type actions and protocol developments or excuse me developments at the protocol level uh will enable everything we want it's just like so from like a tech development perspective i think people are trying to blockchain the world when that's not the solution it's like hey let's work on the most uh important blockchain that affords us the most assurances and then we'll be able to do all that unique cool shit uh we just got to build out the base right so so how do you feel about smart contracts as a use case for distributed ledger technology and like where is that gonna go i think it's great i mean bitcoin bitcoin is the first implementation of smart contracts that's what a multi-sig address is a smart contract and bitcoin is getting close to uh if we get schnorr signatures and get taproot you'll be able to do some really cool smart contract you'll be able to leverage uh bitcoin scripting language in a way that is more descriptive than it is right now and is more flexible than it is now and then on top of that like what is a smart contract that it's basically an if and function uh, between two parties that hopefully cannot be uh controlled by any third party and i think you can build that shit with lightning like on top of bitcoin so again like from from a, from a non-tech guy perspective and a guy that's never written a line of code in his life the you know, Vitalik's original sort of plan for needing Turing complete environment. Turing complete was a red herring. It was a red herring. No, that's the thing. Like that's that's like the biggest uh, biggest marketing scheme by all coins, right? They they take a perceived uh, a perceived. Um, inefficiency of bitcoin in ethereum's case scripting language scriptability like vitalik wouldn't use like all the op returns that satoshi took out of the protocol and satoshi took them out of the protocol because he realized it would bloat the chain and it wouldn't be viable to run a full node and i doubt vitalik didn't like that so he went and created ethereum and again so like from first principles standpoint like he wanted to do he wanted to build the world on top like smart contracts it's very cool but i'm like and again so my investment thesis is do it right or don't do it at all especially in this space with decentralized money you got to do it right and i do think bitcoiners are one shot right now um or don't do it at all and like so like if trying to value ethereum and their development mindset from a tech perspective it's like all right from first principles you're going and building your system based out of something that the early adopters of Bitcoin said this would bloat ours. So, and that's what you're seeing now with Ethereum. Like you're saying, Ethereum doesn't scale. Like they just raised the fucking gas limit this week. Mm. You know what? Like let miners like, hey, we're just going to raise the gas limit. So they just made it harder for everyone who wants to download a full node 
uh, to download a full node. Uh, and that is what needs to be possible if these systems are to be viable longer is for anybody to download software and get their hardware running with the stuff, right? What do you need decentralization for and how decentralized is decentralized enough? You need decentralize. What do you need decentralization for to ensure uh, for Bitcoin to ensure censorship resistance, right? That's that's it. It's like as long as you have enough nodes that allow anybody to transact um, or send messages on the network, transact. Where you're just really sending messages. Um, how much is enough? I don't know. You don't really find out until you're attacked, right? Yeah. And that's like so. That's the next phase. Like that's what I, we were talking about earlier too. Like I'm interested to see if uh Maduro, like Bloomberg posted yesterday, Maduro may be hoarding Bitcoin on Venezuela's balance sheet and even going as far as to use it to send to Russia so that they'll send supplies, so skirting sanctions and so like it, we could see like US and the UN countries be like, yo this Does anybody cool. come out with an estimate of how much Bitcoin they think Venezuela has? I think they had. I don't know the, how much is on the balance sheet. Like, I mean, obviously they're pretty poor with managing money. <laughs> 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 so I wouldn't be surprised they got caught up in some shitcoin schemes. But uh, uh, I, I mean, that's what like I sat down with the guys from Ledin.io in Toronto. But uh, there's a bunch of Venezuelan. Uh, one of their co-founders, Mauricio, is Venezuelan as well. And we, um, ah, I'm just realizing now we posted. Uh, rabbit hole recap i butchered mauricia's name and i redid it thinking i was going to go edit it and i never edited it and posted it so <laughs> this is me realizing that Apologize. live on air yeah. and the freaks are probably tweeting about it now <laughs> but um but he said like that's the thing it's like that not how much yeah is the question how much does the venezuelan government have because venezuelans are using bitcoin down there not as we would like to think they're not holding bitcoin they're Exchanging it for stable coins, Dai being one of them. They chose Dai as their go-to stable coin, um, and so Venezuelans want stability in like U.S. dollar like assets. And then the government did go on a campaign to basically confiscate Bitcoin miners, mine mm-hmm. themselves, and and Mauricio described a scheme in which the government could easily print bolivars and send blackmailed people to local bitcoins mm-hmm. to buy and send to a Maduro address, which yep. a lot of people think is happening. So yep. it's crazy. Nation states are in the Bitcoin game. Yeah. But it's not just, you know, it's not just Venezuela because you can swing all the way back to, you know, the most well-developed, um, sophisticated countries in the world and look at what's going on with their monetary and fiscal policies. And um, banking the unbanked and helping out people that are in places that have to deal with, you know, inflation uh, like they have in Venezuela is, is definitely a, a really noble thing for uh, the crypto ecosystem to go solve. Um, but on the flip side, the, the, the leading economies and, and countries of the world um, are, you know, 10 plus years now into the largest monetary experiment in human history, which is quantitative easing while simultaneously running increasingly larger deficits on top of increasingly untenable debt levels. And you are, you're starting to see, um, and it's apparent that they have no plan to end that. 
not only do they have no plan now, they know they have no plan too. You have people like Mark Carney coming out and being like, "Hey, maybe the U.S. dollar is not going to be around yeah. forever." Um, yeah. And other such instances, like the fact that Trump is on Twitter yelling at Pal is insane. Yeah. And the uh, another thing that I saw that I, I don't know if this caught your attention or not. Did you see the FOMC president, uh, not Pal, but a, a member of the FOMC committee? It's a Fed. Fed. I can't remember which one it was that wrote the Bloomberg opinion article. It was basically like we should consider basically not easing because if we ease, then it's going to give Trump what he wants and basically get him into his second term. So they're politicizing the Fed now in Bloomberg? But like the guy wrote an opinion article basically saying like we should consider not not cutting because it might keep Trump out of his second term, which is just like if you take a step back. Like that's the world that we're living in right now. That's it. And, and it, you're seeing the, you're seeing little things like that, right? You're seeing, um, you know, the whole world's growth is slowing down simultaneously. So, so instead of some parts of the world, their economy's going strong, some parts, you know, not so strong, everything is either going or not going because everything is now tied to central bank actions. So it's all slowing down at the same time. So all central banks are now cutting rates and juicing QE and increasingly more exotic forms of QE um, because, you know, the first time you do heroin, you can do a little bit of heroin and you get super high. But if you've been doing heroin for 10 years, you need a real big shot of heroin to kind of kind of get a little bit of a buzz going. And that's where we're at with 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 monetary policy. And they realize that it's not working and you're starting to see these little cracks and they're starting an easing cycle again, but you're starting it from uh, a, a way place weirder place. Yeah. A way weirder place. The, the uh, ECB, BOJ, uh, Fed, those three balance sheets were like $2 trillion, $2.5 trillion at the beginning of the financial crisis. And now collectively, they're like $15 trillion. Yeah, the U.S., from the Fed's inception from 1913 to 2008, it's 95 years, went from monetary base in the U.S., went from zero to $800 billion. And then from 08 to 14, it went from $800 billion to like $4.3 trillion. Right. It's crazy. Right. And, and, and we're sitting at $15 trillion of negative yielding sovereign debt. And we're only four years into a tightening cycle, four and a half years, and they have to QE again. Like. Well, yeah, I mean, you, I mean, you're not even four and a half years, right? I mean, it's like the the Fed, the Fed started in like the back part of seventeen, and, and um, in terms of like rolling off the balance sheet, yeah, and uh, in 2018, every risk asset on the planet started rolling over, and that was punctuated by this dumpster fire for risk assets globally in Q4 18. And uh, Jay Powell in the middle of December used this autopilot term about what they were going to do with the balance sheet. And the market really didn't like that. And you know who else didn't like it? Trump didn't like it, right? So then Trump starts chastising the Fed on Twitter to be increasingly more irresponsible with an already irresponsible monetary policy. And it worked. And the Fed did their double capitulation at the end of January. And every other central bank on the planet followed suit. Yeah, they were supposed to hike, what, like two or three times this year? Yeah. 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 Instead, you cut twice. Yeah. And now the market is implying a cut at every meeting over the next year. 
There's people thinking they were going to cut 50 bips that they had to do the yeah. emergency repos last week. Yeah. It's uh, and the repos are still going on, right? Uh, they still are. Yep. the The last two were undersubscribed after after last week's where they were oversubscribed. So it's it's um, you know, we can get into this for, for a couple minutes too, just because I think it's it's topical at the moment. Um, this dollar shortage situation, which we don't have to dive into depth here. I, I tell everybody, go listen to Macro Voices, the Macro Voices podcast. Eric Townsend's a boss. Yeah. Come on the pod, Eric. I've emailed you. You're <laughs> listening. I know you're listening. <laughs> and um, uh, he's had a bunch of guests on that lay it out super well. And it, it, it looks like there's some smart folks that say that this is transitory. And there's some smart folks that say it's not transitory. Um, and, and, you know, the, this, this whole dollar shortage situation, um, is, is rearing its head in some weird places. And, and the, the repo rate blowing out is just a symptom of this larger dollar shortage situation. And, um, I think that the crash that we've had this week in Bitcoin price, it started, look, it started uh, the, the market's been acting weird for two months. You know, we put in the top June 26th. We got there way faster than we should have in the first place, right? Um, the acceleration off the bottom in mid-December was of, of a historic velocity in terms of looking at any other kind of bottoming period for, for Bitcoin's previous cycles. And um, Q2-19 was the fifth best quarter for price performance in Bitcoin's history or since 2012. And the second quarter of this year. What's that? Second quarter of this yeah. year was. Yeah. Nice. And um, and then you kind of made these series of lower lows and we started seeing, you know, we've built a good amount of quantitative tools to help kind of understand what this market's doing. And the market started acting weird in the back part of July. And what do you mean by acting weird? Just liquidity drying up or liquidity drying up um, specifically the, the relationship between volume and order book size where um, especially in August order books started getting bigger while volume was decreasing. So lots of makers, very few so takers. People looking to setting low bids or it's, it, it's, uh, it, it's like if you have a room full of people trading Bitcoin, what percentage of the room is algo market makers mm -hmm. and what percentage of the room are people that actually have a view on Bitcoin that got super lopsided. So you think algos got turned on or they've been on, okay. They've been on, but it's just like you had less directional buying interest starting in, in kind of the back part of July that, that, that was exacerbated in August. I write this monthly update letter that goes out the first of every month. The August 1st letter, um, we basically talked about how we were seeing this beginning of a shift in market structure. And we said it, it was for three reasons. One, the uh, Bloomberg article about the CFTC investigation on BitMEX, and that was scaring people. And you were seeing uh, uh, the, the supply of Bitcoin fleeing BitMEX, which we track. You can track whale traders. And you, yeah, and you were seeing, um, shout out to Coinmetrics. Um, that's the underlying for that data. And, um, and then you also had uh, Alameda Research, number one liquidity provider in the space. They had just launched their FTT token, which was associated with their, their exchange, FTX. And so basically the number one liquidity provider in the space was doing 
much less or nothing on BitMEX anymore because they had started their own exchange. So that was messing with liquidity. And also it was summertime and people made a lot of money and there's probably a lot of people drunk in Mykonos, right? And like, that's <laughs> totally fine. And so we, so we were like, okay, these three things we think are going on that are kind of sh messing with this market structure. And, uh, and then our September 1st letter over the month of August, we said, okay, this market structure has been exacerbated. It's worse now than it was a month ago. And now we're thinking either one of two things is, is going to happen. Either, either uh, it was just summertime and everybody's going to get back from Mykonos after Labor Day and we got back coming and gold's ripping and the remembies ripping and Bitcoin's going to have an up 30% month in September and we're back to business. We're going to make a run at an all-time high this year at this thing. Or the weirdness that we're seeing right now is actually a canary in the coal mine for traditional asset classes which has been a view that we've had um, for a while. It's a view shared by Jeff Gunlock, who's one of my all-time favorite investors. He had a video that he, that he put out at the end of December of 18. He's a big bond guy, right? Yeah, they call him the bond king. He runs double line, 140 billion AUM. Yeah. And, uh, and just, I think, one of the smartest guys doing it. And uh, he, he said that he thought crypto was a canary in the coal mine for risk assets where you had all risk ripping in 17, Bit, you know, crypto broadly was the poster child of that. Crypto peaked first, late 17, early 18, started declining. Over the course of 18, every risk asset on the planet started rolling over. Dumpster fire, Q4 18, crypto bottom December 15th. Uh, Steve Mnuchin calls a plunge protection team December 24th from, from Cabo. Market rips higher on that. Uh, Steve, uh, uh, Jay Powell does, they do their dovish capitulation at the end of January, all risk rips, crypto rips. And then, and then you kind of start getting this weirdness and you can look at the S and P 500 right now. And for the TA guys, that sure does look like a double top in the S and P 500 and gold's at a six and a half year high. Right. And, uh, the remember just ripped past seven. Right. And so there's all these kind of weird things going on in traditional asset classes. And so. So we kind of laid that out September 1st in our monthly update letter that like, like there's kind of two things going on. And we got back and we were kind of, you know, a week or so into September and we kissed 10-7, rejected it hard. We're in this big descending triangle that everybody and their mother's looking at, right? And, uh, you know, and it, it wasn't looking like we were having any kind of pickup in volume activity, um, still acting weird and then sure enough you get this uh quant quake this momo unwind in traditional asset classes real big deal torched a bunch of quant hedge funds in in uh, traditional asset classes and then you get this repo situation and then you know we're going into backed and you know crypto is constantly buy the rumor sell the news so you should see some action going into that you're seeing sort of no excitement going into that uh, uh, the, the, the whales try and orchestrate this extremely half-assed mini alt season. It was, you know, embarrassing. Right. And then sure enough, here comes last Sunday night, here comes back and they rip a, a, a 71 BTC first day volume. Insane volume, huge <laughs> success, great success. And, uh, and that opens up the door. Right. And then, you know, here we are $2,000 later. Um, I didn't think we were getting. We were well positioned for it, to be honest with you, as a, as a fund. I did not think we were getting going to get another hack at, at Bitcoin this low. I really, I really didn't. I'm, uh, I'm counting my blessings from Satoshi right now. I, you know? I, I kind of feel the same way. Well, 
I think that's a big question on everybody's mind right now uh, is how does Bitcoin react in a true risk off scenario like where markets are crashing if we do rip into another global crisis here is Bitcoin ready for the mainstream as a safe haven uh, and even if it's not just a safe haven if it, is it sort of uh, unrelated to the uh, the traditional financial world uh, and returns in that in that world. Yeah, it's um, I like to say Bitcoin is a risk asset, but it's a risk asset with a specific set of investment characteristics that become increasingly more attractive the more irresponsible monetary and fiscal policy becomes. Um, there's probably going to be some Bitcoiners that aren't going to love me for this, but um, if it wasn't for quantitative easing, Bitcoin would still be a science experiment in the, in the closet of a bunch of computer science nerds. What do you mean by that? Um, if central banks and governments were more responsible with their monetary and fiscal policies, the need for a non-sovereign form of money would be diminished. Yeah. If we are still on the gold standard, like, I don't know if we'd need this thing. Oh, exactly. I think a bunch of Bitcoiners would be pumped we were back on the gold standard. Yeah. I mean, if they feel that, like, Bitcoin is needed to get off. Of and, it, right? and, and just a gentle reminder, we got off that thing in, in 1971, and, uh, you know, we've had you know, call it 5,000 years of monetary history, um, give or take. And I would argue, and with a little bit of hindsight, I think it's going to be apparent that it took us 46 years to fuck up the dollar after we got off the gold standard. And in the context of like 5,000 years of monetary history, that's like a long weekend. Yeah. Like lip. A hundred years from now, when they write the books, they're going to say, in 1971, the United States got off the gold standard. 46 years later, they broke the U.S. dollar. It's going to be like that part of ancient Rome where you only talk about like one one of the emperors for, for like a 50-year period. Or yeah, something. and the day, and that's another good point because like the day that, 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 that Rome fell, or like when, 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 they, when you go back and people talk about like when, when the Roman civilization fell, like the day it happened back then, people weren't like in Rome like, oh shit, it just fell. No, it was exactly. only with decades or hundreds of years. You only look back in retrospect. That's it, right? That's it. And I think we're totally at this point right now where you're watching this sort of like unraveling occur and it feels like it's happening slowly. But all this stuff, it's like Ernest Hemingway talks about going broke slowly and then all at once, which is exactly how I think that the, this, this situation is going to play out. And um, with just a little bit of hindsight, you know, I think – in the same way that we thought it was a great idea to separate church and state at the beginning of, of, of this nation's history, it's going to be a no-brainer that, like, oh, we, we should have separated money and state. It, it's not even going to, like, in retrospect, it's not even going to be a no-brainer. We've been warned. Like, yeah. the founding fathers, some of them at least, Alexander, uh, was Alexander Hamilton a founding father? Yeah, he was. Yeah. Um, he warned about the banks. He shut down the second bank of the United States, like, you go, you go back to Aristotle. Aristotle warned about money, like yeah. don't don't let money get corrupted. Yeah. Like, and you go back to Sumerian times. They have the the basically financial plans of how to build uh, wealth via hard assets, via livestock. Like, money is something, and this is. I'm very glad you brought up this line of thinking. This is something I like to echo on this podcast a lot. Like, they people have told us throughout history, don't fuck up the money. Mm -hmm. And like you said, last 46 years, we have. 48 years we fucked up the money pretty pretty bad and and so like going back to like all this fed talk and like how the system actually works it's like 
is it confusing for a reason? Like people don't even understand like the Federal Reserve is supposed to be an apolitical private institution separate from the government. Mm -hmm. And the fact that like they're supposed to understand that the fact that Trump is tweeting at Powell is a very, very bad sign because they are not supposed to be interacting at all. But people don't even understand that. They don't even understand that part of their money functions that way. It's like, how do we wake people up? We're getting drunk here, too. (laughs) Episodes brought to you by Oberon. Cheers. Um, So so how Bitcoin acts in a a recession, I think, depends on uh, the type of recession, um, what skeletons fall out of the closet as the recession happens or or as as, uh, Buffett, our pre-coiner, would like to tell us. Um, you, when the tide goes out, you know, you know, where, where are people not wearing their swim trunks? And then it'll depend on the aggressiveness of, uh, central banks and governments in, in response to that. And so the, the wet dream for most Bitcoiners is an inflationary recession, which I think is not on the table. Let's speculative attack this bitch. Let's go. <laughs> I think it's I think it's probably I think it's probably not on the table, at least not not this immediate go around. And it also looks like to me that because I think in I think it was like in 2014, we kind of we didn't go into a recession. We, I think we kind of like like uh, just touched kind of zero growth and kept going. Um, and it looks like that's probably what's going to happen again because the central bankers are so quick on the trigger right now to keep this thing from really coming unraveled, coming unraveled. And the reason they're so quick on the trigger is because they know how fragile this whole thing is. It's become so fragile and quantitative easing is so deeply distorted asset price discovery in the context of public markets and the way that 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 capital is supposed to be allocated and time preference and um you know when the german 10 year is negative 60 bips it's fucking ridiculous right strongest economy in europe yeah then then it there's such a distortion and you see you see it everywhere you see signs of it everywhere it's one of one of the places that i like to talk about it a lot is is venture capital Oh. U- U.S. venture capital, dude. The I saw a CB Insights chart of the billion-dollar unicorns that had the amount of billion-dollar unicorns that have proliferated since like 2004. It's crazy. Like it's one, like 2004 is like one. You know, like 2008, it's like maybe three. And like today, it's just like you can't even read the chart. Yeah. Because. And 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 it has also shifted, and this is definitely relevant for 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 crypto. It, it shifted. Uh, the concept of value is subjective and um, for a long time we valued equity based on the dividends that it paid and you do a dividend discount model and you would uh, come up with what the cost of money was and you would discount the future dividends back to present value using your discount rate and that was the price of your stock and then we decided that you don't actually have to pay all of it out in the form of a dividend. Earnings is actually enough. So now here comes the PE ratio, right? And we've been using that for, I don't know, 80 years or something like that. And then we moved to like EV to EBITDA, right? So we actually, just, EBITDA is okay because like the, actual, the stuff below the line, tax, taxes and interest is actually more of a function of like what your, what your corporate structure is and, and what, your, what, your, uh, what your capital structure is. And so like that's okay. And then 
in the eighties, it was actually like, you actually don't need that many earn. You don't need that much earnings. You can actually, if you have tons of revenue, then we'll give you a big value on that. And, and I think the Amazon is the poster child of that. Have you ever seen the, the chart of it's uh it's the bar chart of Amazon's quarterly revenue and quarterly earnings. They've never made money. And they just, they, until they got AWS, yes, which a lot of people, AWS is yeah, their moneymaker. That is the cash cow. Yeah. They had this tremendous revenue growth with like, you know, close to flat earnings, but it grew to be a multi hundred billion dollar valuation because people were like, they've got all this earnings growth. And then, and then it was like, oh, we actually don't even need revenue. If you got users, and this is the state of Silicon Valley right now, if you just have some users, it doesn't matter how much revenue you have because uh, we'll figure out how to monetize them at some point later down the road, right? And so, so there's been this, sh- this shift of value and it, that you could call it a shift. You could also currently, I think, call it a distortion, and the distortion has really been a function of quantitative easing as it has forced people out on the risk spectrum. And all of these things, like so many things in life, politics, um, sociology, like, you know, professional sports dynasties, like everything in life moves in, in pendulum swings. And pendulums have a tendency to get too far out in one direction and then the world and its beauty, it's, it's beautiful how this works. The pendulum just has a tendency to swing back in the other way. And it certainly does feel like the pendulum is pretty far out there in terms of what's going on with financial markets and monetary and fiscal policy. Yeah. And it's like you, like you were alluding to, like the goalposts have just been moved so many times. It's like, all right. And like I was explaining earlier, like I worked at a valuations firm and uh, like that was my job was like it's like the EBITDA and the cash flows yeah. and, and figure out how to value this and the unique ways in which people you don't even worry about producing a very good business where they're creating a very good end product to worry about how they're going to manipulate their balance sheet to get that EPS that they want right and yeah. it's uh it's uh again yeah it's like it's fucked up incentives and that's again like Bitcoin's incentives are very straightforward that's what draws me to it and others i would imagine i don't want to speak for anybody else but it is uh it i and again like going back to do people realize this do they understand that they should realize this that's my worry like so my biggest worry for bitcoin is apathy like people just don't even realize that they need to care about it i'd be way more worried about the apathy aspect of it if uh if central bank and government actions weren't so egregious so egregiously bullish for Bitcoin, right? <laughs> and and again, you know, to the pendulum analogy, how far how, how far out is the pendulum swung, and is it about to start coming back the other direction? Because I run a fund and and manage people's and institutions' money for a living, and I, I need to put up returns, right? So if I'm too early to this thing and I lose a bunch of money, then like my investors are going to take their money away from me. So like, I, you know, it's like, I have a job to do. So I have to think about the, the timing of some of this stuff. And it goes back to, to your original question about, um, you know, what's going to happen in a recession. Like, how is all of this going to go down? Which is like kind of the 10 billion or, or $10 trillion question as it relates to Bitcoin, what's the timing and how is all this going to go down? And, it seems like, and it's really hard to say, it's like, it's really hard to say, but it seems like um, central banks are going to do everything that they can this time around. And by this time around, I mean like right now in 2020 
to keep a recession from happening or certainly a deep one. And, and they're going to be able to kind of kick the can. Um, but, and then, and then, and then it'll probably go on for another couple of years, but balance sheets are going to get a lot bigger, right? So we're going to go from that $15 trillion number to a, a $20 trillion number, a $25 trillion number and, um, uh, negative aggregate, you know, sovereign debt is going to go from, you know, 17 trillion to 25 trillion or whatever the number is. And, you know, you look at the, the U S 10 year right now and it's, it's at a buck 50 and like nobody's asking whether or not this is the bottom. The people are asking is the, is the U S 10 year going to go negative. Right. So it's almost like a foregone conclusion that we're going to lop at least a hundred bips off of the U S 10 year. Well, that's like the big question that's on everybody's mind is one, it, when is one does the last snowflake fall on this yeah. avalanche. So when is a complete lack of confidence like uh, arrive in this whole system? So right? I think you a- you ask yourself where does it emanate from? Where in the global economy, global markets, where does it emanate, emanate from? And so then you ask yourself who who is the most fucked right now? And is it Deutsche Bank? And you li- you line up the different. And so the 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 interesting thing about this, and and maybe the the somewhat somewhat refreshing thing about being an American sitting in America, you know, earning in dollars. And I think all this is going to be strong dollar, I think. And um, because I like to say the the Fed's monetary policy is the best monetary policy house on a really crappy monetary policy block because the BOJ is in a way worse shape than we are. BOJ has been doing this for two decades. Yeah. The ECB is in a way worse shape than we are. And a good, a, a perfect symptom of that is like the state of the European banking system, right? And um, I'm of the opinion that the the euro as a currency is going to collapse in the next ten years, and that may sound like super wacko and like off the reservation or whatever, but like I don't you're telling so. me that we're like we're getting to the end of the 2020s and the euro is like still still hanging around, huh? Like that just I don't think that's going to happen, dude. Michael Lewis's boomerang. Great book. Like like reading. That's his most underrated book, in my opinion. I was actually, I recommended it to somebody and I looked it up on Amazon. It only has four stars. But if you want to get like a good look into actually what happened in 08 and in many different countries at the same time, like the chapters on Greece and Italy in particular and how the IMF and Goldman Sachs helped them cook the books to get into the Euro, like that was my moment. When I read those chapters, I was like, this doesn't make any fucking sense. Yeah. Like, how could this. Why would Germany put up with it, number one? You yep. have the strong economy in the north basically subsidizing this other. It is worth mentioning that Germany's economy has been so strong because they hitched their cart to the Chinese horse. And so much of their economic strength has been a function of exporting their skills and really? products and services to feeding Chinese growth. Yeah, and I could show you some some interesting charts that like, it's super apparent in terms of like the lag between like like uh, the Chinese PMI and their services PMI lagged against like the German uh, PMI. Like it's like they they have done that, and that's what has allowed them to. Um, they're also the the least lazy Europeans on the planet, and uh, in all of Europe, and uh, and so it's you allowed them to put the entire European Union on their on their back. But the it's just you look at the the uncompetitiveness of different parts of of the EU, and it's just it's not tenable. And uh, the reason that they've got Christine Lagarde in there running the ECB right now, she's not a monetary person. She's a fiscal person. 
So they got to figure out, they got to get somebody in there that's going to figure out how to spend all of the dollars that they're printing. And you're, and you're starting that from such a wacky place, right? That like, are they going to kick it? Are they going to kick the can in 20? Yeah, probably 21. I don't know, probably 22. I don't know, probably. But you start getting into the middle part of the 2020s. And I, I just think you kind of run out of, you know, heroin to shoot, so to speak. Well, so I agree, but I think this is becoming the consensus. And like, so if that becomes like, as we're talking about like pricing and halvings and stuff like that, if that becomes the consensus, if that is the death knell of this central banking, this hegemonic central banking dovish policy, like the people are like, all right, we've got five years. Is there a point at which like it happens faster than we expect? Right. Yeah. I. I. I, I, yeah, I I'm, I'm yeah. A little drunk. Just heavy <laughs> it's hard. It's 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 hard to say. Um. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the timing, um. This stuff always takes longer than you think it's going to. Um. But it's apparent that in between now and whenever it really they really can't kick the can anymore, they're gonna do everything that they can to kick the can, and they're all racing to devalue their currency faster than the rest of the central banks. And if everybody in the world is racing to devalue their currency the fastest, what are they devaluing against? They're devaluing against things that have provable scarcity. Gold yeah. has provable scarcity. Bitcoin has more provable scarcity than gold. In Austrian economics terms, gold is the hardest money in human history. And so all of the way that this is going to play out I think it's going to be deeply bullish for a non-sovereign, hard-cap supply, global, immutable, decentralized, digital store of value. And um, at some point, when the euro really looks like it's starting to come unraveled, um, at, some time, at some point in the next 10 years, when it actually happens, if Bitcoin's price went down 50%, like, like the euro's really collapsing, Bitcoin's price goes down 50%, wouldn't be surprised. But then I wouldn't be surprised at all that you start hearing whispers or seeing things in terms of Europeans trying to get out of Euro-based assets and holding their wealth in Euro, you know, either Euros or Euro-based assets, and they start fleeing to Bitcoin. And the velocity, like it only, that only has to happen just a little bit. until that's my base case for the most likely hyper-Bitcoinization situation. And let's say it happens in 2025. What's the price of 2025 going to be? We just that we, we would have just knocked out the next halving. So now we're at 3.125 Bitcoin produced every 10 minutes. I mean, I would guess that the price of Bitcoin is going to be over 100,000 at that point. But you could get into a situation where um, you know Bitcoin goes from 100,000 to a couple hundred thousand like like real quickly. Yeah. No, I think if the next rip ha- if the, if there is another bull run that happens, I think we rip. If we get past a hundred thousand, I think people would be very surprised at how how fast we get to two hundred thousand after that. Yeah. Um, but are we crazy? Like, is it is it too good to be true? Like this opportunity, is that a? In, that's like the question. My like, is it too good to be true? Like, what? Who? Who am I? I'm a little asshole here in Brooklyn. Like, who am I <laughs> to notice this 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 potential uh, life changing wealth transfer before anybody else? Right. I think I think you have to keep in mind generational shifts as well too, and that's a, that's a big part of it. And uh, getting boomers retired and not running the world anymore, and moving, you know, Gen X and then millennials into uh, the position of 
trigger pullers in terms of making the decisions that run the world. And um, the younger you are, the more sense you think Bitcoin makes and the less sense you think gold makes. And the concept of uh, uh, putting trust in open source software makes way more sense to younger people than it does to older, older people. And um, the other thing that I think about a lot in terms of, because a lot of this is, uh, you, you, you have to keep in mind uh, human nature, I think, when trying to assess whether or not this massive shift in the way the world is going to work is going to happen over the next 10, 20 plus years, 30 years, whatever. Um, and for as long as human history, you know, civilization has existed, you've had one generation to the next generation and power struggles as you go from generation to generation and the next generation isn't any nicer than the last generation. They fight over power just like everybody else and they hoard all of it and, and uh, they try and, you know, make as much money for themselves as they can. And um, uh, you know, that's, that's just in human nature. It's Darwinian the way that we're Mm -hmm. supposed to be like that. Right. And uh, so I think you would be, foolish to ignore human nature like that but we're at a really interesting time in technological development right now and if you look at the the if you've seen like the global it's like the the global index for like happiness or like uh uh quality of life i've seen the global fear index but global happiness yeah it's like it's like i think it's like global quality of life index or something like that Mm -hmm. and they 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 put it they they have it tracking all the way back to like the 1400s and i think it takes like life expectancy and birth rate and death rate and you can kind of back into kind of some gdp per capita stuff even a long long time ago and things like that and if you look at it uh, the slope of the line was super flat for hundreds and hundreds of years, which makes sense because like the difference between your quality of when you're, if you're living in the 1400s, like there's no expectation that your life is going to be that much better than your parents or your grandparents. It's all kind of the same. Right. And the, the slope of the line shifted when we made the steam engine, because then it's not manpower that's pushing uh, uh, uh human progress forward then we get something better than that right and then when we figure out electricity then it kind of takes a a, a tilt up like that but then when we move to uh, uh, digital innovation and the microprocessor then you get this real big shift because now you're not moving linearly because you're not focused on it's not mechanical innovation now we're talking about technological innovation that's based approximately on Moore's law Right. And that's not a linear that's not a linear phenomenon. That's a super linear phenomenon. And so now we're at this crazy part where where you've inflected in that uh, how how much better is the world getting? And, I, and, and f- for us that are you know, I'm 34 years old. So for us, it may feel like the world's crazy and super shitty right now. But objectively, this is the best time in human civilization to live. It's safer. We're killing each other less. We're dying from diseases less. We're living longer. The quality of life is better. It's like we have to deal with problems like depression from social from social media. Right. Like those are the problems that we're dealing with right now. And so because of where we are at this inflection point, there's a chance I mean, te- and it's technology that's bringing it, bring it to us. Right. 
there's less people in the world that are hungry today than there ever have been. That's going to continue. You fast forward a couple decades from now, and we get fake meat right, and now we're and now <laughs> and now we don't have to we don't have to use all of our agriculture to grow beef, but we can actually use it to feed the world. So we're, we're probably going to solve hunger in the next. It's already solved. Do you want Do you want fake meat though? No, but other people eat it. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. Maybe if they get it good enough. I mean, I'm not trying. To, I'm not trying it right now. But but but, but my, my point being is is that where we are because of technology that is now making the world better at a super linear pace, there's a chance, the analogy that I use is there's a bread basket sitting right here on the table. And you and I are sitting across from here and there's, there's one piece of bread in here. Well, the way that humans act is, if it comes down to it, I will kill you for that piece of bread in the bread basket. But because of technological innovation, there is a legitimate chance that where we are in, in, in civilization right now, that there is, quickly becoming enough bread in the bread basket to go around for everybody. And is there a chance that that can change the way that humans interact when we're sitting in front of this bread basket? And that would be my optimistic hope that there would be a willingness for a millennial generation, or maybe it's the generation after us, or maybe it's even the generation after that to say, you know, actually we are going to democratize the way that the, 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 the hoarding of power that's gone on right now, that is the, the problems that we have right now in our political system in the United States, which is the most broken it's been since the Civil War. Wall Street is rigged. Big tech companies take your data and they do shitty stuff with it or they don't keep it safe or they take the value that's created from it and the owners of the companies become the richest people in the world, but they don't return that value to users. Is there a chance that we're going to be willing to, because that's what distributed ledger technology does, is it democratizes all of that back out to people. And, um, and, and instead of siloing power and hoarding power, and this is a broad statement, um, it, it democratizes that back out. And my knee-jerk reaction is that humans don't act like that. So I shouldn't expect humans to act like that unless we happen to be at this point where technology is making the world a better place where you can actually say, okay, we'll do that because I don't have to worry about whether or not there's enough bread in the bread basket. Yeah. It's by the way, the bread is yours. I'm on a no carb diet. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, no, it is. So that's like, you're, you're setting me. We're about to get cosmic here. You're sending me down like a heady path. It's like, if, so I'm a big fascinated by history and particularly like, ancient ancient history like where there are civilizations like i'm like to think about atlantis and the way atlantis is spoken about as like some weird paradise where humans figured it out and were able to coordinate and cooperate in a very peaceful uh way and we now live in a time where that is obviously not happening we have wars that are going on but i do like you said like i do think in another theme of this podcast is like the big problem in our world is like people are swinging at branches when they're not getting to the root of the problem. The root of the problem is money. So I think if we do solve the root of this problem, like the, the cooperation that you're describing is possible. And it's, and again, like echoing what I was saying earlier, like do people care enough? Do they know that they need to care enough to get the money right so that we can cooperate and nobody has to worry about the breadbasket, right? Like, because I do think that is the main driving 
factor making the bread in the bear, bread basket less and less is is the core of the problem is the money. It's it's why we name the firm Ikigai. Ikigai, ancient Japanese concept, means reason for being. It's the combination of what you're good at, what you like to do, what the world needs, and what you deserve to be paid for. And they say if you get all four of those things, then you find your Ikigai. And they say one of the reasons that people in Japanese culture live so long is because they have this, this concept of Ikigai to go, to go kind of search after. Strive for. Yeah, to strive for. And it's the kind of thing that gets you out of bed in the morning. And... The world doesn't need another hedge fund manager. There's, there's a lot, plenty of hedge fund managers in the world. But the world does need this technology. And it has the potential to make the world a much better place. And quickly, like in one generation, right? In, in one, two generations, we can make the world a better place meaningfully for hundreds of millions, billions of people. And, uh, but the playbook isn't written yet. And that's the important part. And that's, you know, it's like I had no like public presence before I got into crypto. But it's like why I like when I had the opportunity to go like stand on a, a soapbox and wave my hands. Like it's, it's why I want to do that stuff, because if you can get enough people moving in the right direction and realizing the potential to make the world a better place, then. Uh, that is just strikes me as the kind of thing to spend the rest of my career or life working on. This is going to sound cheesy. I don't know why, but for some reason, that last line, like trying to get the momentum of the world working in this direction, made me think of Finding Nemo, like when, <laughs> the end scene, <laughs> when they just need to get the fish to swim down. That's uh, what, like, we as a humanity, we like to fix this problem. We just need to swim down. Buy Bitcoin. That's swimming down. <laughs> you can, you can solve this problem at its core. But it is there's something like socially, like we are monkeys or animals. Like for some reason, it's like everybody's so like, oh no, this is the way things are. This is the way they have to be. They're telling me this on TV. This is this is the way the world is. And it's yeah. Like, ah. Yeah. I'm gonna shake them. And I'm not. I'm not an optimist. Like. I'm not like a blinding optimist by nature. I, I would say I'm much more of a realist where you, you just look at what's in front of you and, um, uh, you know, call it like it is. And, and I, I try and do that in all parts of my life. Just call a spade a spade in this particular part. I mean, I am, I am really hopeful because it does. It's like I said, it's not written in stone yet. We could fast forward 10 years, 20 years from now, 30 years from now. And if, if this goes not the way that we want it to distribute ledger technology, Bitcoin, um, all the different use cases for this stuff, we could, we, we could end up just delivering on a fraction of what it could have been. And so it, it feels like an obligation and an honor, um, to try and, do whatever I can to, to, to get things uh, to deliver on the maximum amount of potential to make the world a better place that we can. That's a cool thing to work on. Right. And thank you for working on it. I mean, and I think that's something as like, we're talking about generations here. Like I do think like that we were talking about like how I worked uh, in finance in Chicago, but like I, I wasn't, I loved the people I worked with, I loved learning. I learned so much, but like, I just felt like there was something like I need to go do something better. And I think that's something a lot of people are missing is that drive to and the feeling of participating in a common mission and, uh, f 
feel like they're actually contributing to something that's actually useful, not going to a nine to five under fluorescent lights and uh, crunching Excel sheets for things that'll be forgotten in oblivion within five to ten years, right? And it's like... Yeah, but I mean, the world's not going to run without a bunch of people crunching spreadsheets under fluorescent lights. That's so true. It's, it's not... That's, the world just doesn't work if everybody kind of does that. Um, and different people have different skill sets, different people have different interests, different people have different risk tolerances, career risk tolerance, right? Well, as long as they're fine with sitting on their fluorescent lights and they like VLOOKUPs, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Shout-outs VLOOKUPs. That was a good one. Yeah, I think those that, were nice. Um, it's been incredible, man. Thank yeah. you for coming by, dude. Really enjoyed it. Um, is there any parting notes you want to leave for the freaks? Like, uh, It's... Uh, been a pleasure as like a just a hedge fund bro um to be able to jump into this ecosystem and um uh i feel like i've 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 been opened with or I've, I've been received with more or less open arms and um uh a little less tribalism uh i think would would go a long way um a little more just constructive conversation about some of this stuff uh, would go a long way. And um, there's a lot of potential out there, like what we were just saying. There's a lot of potential. And um, it's up to us, the people listening to this podcast, the people in this ecosystem, um, to do the best that each of us can do on an individual basis, whatever it is that we can contribute and if, if, if you don't have necessarily a skill set you can contribute, you can contribute an attitude. And, uh, and being on the right side of that, like, um, uh, that's the kind of thing that when you look back at the end of your life, like, it's like, that's a good thing to hang your hat on. So that's what I'm working on. And, and um, uh, it's going to be a wild ride, man. <laughs> it is really going to be a wild ride. It's going to be next a however rip. many years, right? It's just going to be, it's going to be exciting and, uh, and uh you know it's just an honor to be a part of it so well let's enjoy it well it's an honor to be uh, on this joy ride with you i think uh i think trying to change the world is an admirable endeavor yeah um shout out to what you guys are doing at ikigai Mm. uh the ikigai mentality is something to strive for too um that's all we got this week freaks long day of recording happy to end it with you travis we're done peace and love